This episode of Long Reads is brought to you by Haymarket Books. One title you might enjoy is Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders and Cages by Ray Acheson. The book analyses the key structures of state violence in the world today and their roots in patriarchy, racism and capitalism. You can find Abolishing State Violence at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Science fiction has traditionally depicted a robot takeover as a conscious bid for global domination by our mechanical offspring. From Terminator to The Matrix, we've been invited to picture a war to the death between man and machine. The system goes online on August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes, it launches its missiles against the targets in Russia. Why attack Russia? Aren't they offensive? Because Skynet knows that the Russian counterattack will eliminate its enemies over here. Jesus. More recently, however, figures like Elon Musk have spoken about the rise of the robots as a more insidious threat to humanity. The machines may bear us no ill will, but they'll still cast us on the scrap heap of technological unemployment anyway. What's going to happen is robots will be able to do everything better than us. I mean, all of us, you know. Essentially, if your competitor is racing to build AI and you don't, they will crush you. So then you're like, ah, we don't want to be crushed. So, you know, I guess we need to build it too. That's where you need the regulators to come in and say, hey guys, um, you all need to really, you know, just pause and make sure this is safe. And like when, when it's cool and, we're convi- and the regulators are convinced that it's safe to proceed, then you can go. But otherwise, slow down. I mean, there's like something like 12% of jobs are transport. Transport will be one of the first things to go fully autonomous. But when I say everything, like the robots will be able to do everything. Our guest today is Aaron Beninev. He's the author of Automation and the Future of Work, a book that takes aim at the conventional wisdom about the impact of technology. Your book is intended as a response to what you call the automation discourse. What would you say are the main arguments of that intellectual tendency? So when I talk about the automation discourse, I'm talking about a group of authors or perspectives that you find not just in academia or in Silicon Valley, but kind of across the political spectrum and media space. And I would say it's defined by the basic intuition that today science fiction is becoming a reality, right? Science fiction technologies are quickly becoming part of our everyday life. And they point to things like machine learning and neural networks and advanced robotics. And they say that these things are quickly transforming everything about the economy to bring about what they sometimes refer to, and I take over this term myself, a post-scarcity world, a world where just the, there's so much abundance of everything we want and need that um, the characteristics of the economy are fundamentally transformed. In the book, I describe these, this automation discourse as having four core propositions. The first one is look around you. Workers are already being replaced by ever more advanced machines. The second one is that the second proposition is that what we're seeing today around us is just the first sign of a real technological revolution that's going to eventually result in the end of work. The time frame and the scale on which this is happening is not always clear, but it seems to be something that's really about to happen in the next few years or in the coming decades. The third proposition then is that um, this world without work should be a beautiful utopia should be the achievement of all of our hopes and dreams for the economy. But because people need to work in order to survive, it could well turn out to be a nightmare of um, 
the return of like an aristocratic uh, robber baron society of tech elites with everyone else becoming these digital peasants, just, you know, fighting for scraps to survive. And then the fourth proposition, which really makes the automation discourse into a political project is that they say, in order to get to the good technological future and avoid the bad one, we need to implement a universal basic income. And this universal basic income that would that would give people more and more money without asking anything from them in return, as far as work goes, would push us towards the positive tech future and away from the dystopian one. Moving away from the arguments and the discourse around automation, what has really been happening in the world economy and in patterns of employment over the past few decades? And what developments do you think we're likely to see over the coming years? That's a great question. I mean, I think that it's really important to emphasize that we do live in an era of broad-based and even radical technical change, which has occurred under the, the title of the information, communication, technology revolution. And the most important aspects of that are obviously just the, the internet, right? And um, everything to do with computers being in our pockets, in the um, goods that we're purchasing and also organizing and making possible pretty vast and complex international supply chains. So there have been these real technological breakthroughs. The problem is that um, these breakthroughs, as incredible as they are, and you, know, you can pull a device out of your pocket that your parents could never have dreamed of owning, as incredible as those advances are, they haven't really resulted in a radical rise in productivity growth. And productivity growth is sort of the, the standard economic measure of how technological change is actually affecting the work we do. How much are our technologies making it possible for us to produce more goods and services with fewer hours of work? And in those terms, the era we live in has really been an era of slowdown. Productivity growth slowed down. And also because productivity growth is part of economic growth, a big part of how that happens, we've also lived in an era of secular economic stagnation, of a radical and persistent slowdown in economic rates of growth. So that's one thing that I'm talking about in the books is this paradox of um, apparent technological acceleration and measurable economic and even productivity decline. So that's on one side of the economic story. And then the other side is really about how the kinds of work people do has changed over this period, let's say since 1970. So um, in the past 52 years or so. And what I describe in the book is the process of deindustrialization, which is um, people tend to think about that in terms of uh, factory closures and the loss of industrial jobs. In the scientific or social scientific literature, deindustrialization is usually defined as a decline in the share of the workforce that um, is employed in manufacturing. And the reason why it's a kind of relative concept is because it's even unfolding in countries where you have um, rapid growth of um, the total workforce and even some growth then of the industrial workforce. So for example, China is deindustrializing. doesn't necessarily mean that um, the n total number of industrial jobs is declining. It means that industrial employment isn't keeping up with the growth of the workforce overall. But in any case, in countries in the West and also in, um, you know, in the United States and Germany and the UK and Japan, and Korea, we're actually seeing a pretty significant decline in the number of workers in industry. And that has huge consequences. I mean, anyone interested in the left and in the history of socialism knows that um, the industrial working class was really supposed to be this vanguard of the class bringing about this uh, really important new future. And we've now lived through half a century, in many cases, of the decline of that edge of the workforce. And I know I'm not alone in, in thinking that that means we really need to analyze where workers are going. And actually, uh, there's been a big shift just in the past few years 
where in the world as a whole, not just in the rich countries, but for the whole world economy, the world labor force of um, well over 3 billion adults, um, we've just crossed this turning point where half of the world, more than half of the world's workforce is in services. And the service economy is just so heterogeneous. It includes everyone from stock traders on Wall Street to a guy cutting hair in a back alleyway, you know, in in uh, Shenzhen. So it's this huge and varied sphere of activity, and it has an amazing like diversity of different jobs, but also income levels and education levels. But one of the defining features of the growth of um, this global service workforce is that their situation is sort of constrained or defined by um, what economists call uh, Balmol's cost disease after this famous economist, William Balmol. And what Balmol said is that it's not a feature of all services at all times, but as a general trend, services see much lower rates of productivity growth. Um, and it's very hard, basically, to consistently and continuously raise productivity, raise the efficiency with which workers work in services as compared to um, how it's possible to do that in industry. And so one of the big arguments of the book is that um, as industrial um, development has been constrained, and part of my argument there is really about how the world market is increasingly oversupplied with industrial goods, there's overcapacity, there's intense international competition, and as a result, there isn't much growth there or there's not as much growth in the industrial field, what's happening is that more and more work and more and more activities taking place in this low growth, uh, low dynamism service sector. And this is the main thing that is um, causing this uh, stagnation tendency to get worse and worse around the world. And it kind of swamps all of the technological effects that are gained by these new technologies, because as much fanfare as there's been around machine learning and neural networks and robotics, that these are going to change everything about the economy. We just don't see them actually having that effect across the broad service sector. And that might be because, just as a last point, information and communication heavy work only makes up a small fraction of that total service uh, service sector work in general. So the, the effects of Productivity growth in that smaller sector aren't playing out, aren't diffusing, as the boosters suggest, across the, the wider economy. The age of robots has been anticipated since the beginning of the last century. Fritz Lang fantasized about it. This episode of 60 Minutes from 2013 was an especially striking example of the automation hype. Robots were often portrayed as household help. Yeah, take your hat and coat. And by the time the Star Wars trilogy arrived, robots with their computerized brains and nerve systems had been fully integrated into our imagination. Now they're finally here, but instead of serving us, we find them competing for our jobs. And according to MIT professors Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee, one of the reasons for the jobless recovery. Our economy is bigger than it was before the start of the Great Recession. Corporate profits are back. Uh, business investment in hardware and software is back higher than it's ever been. What's not back is the jobs. And you think technology and increased automation is a factor in that? Absolutely. The percentage of Americans with jobs is at a 20-year low. Just a few years ago, if you traveled by air, you would have interacted with a human ticket agent. Today, those jobs are being replaced by robotic kiosks. Bank tellers have given way to ATMs. Sales clerks are surrendering to e-commerce. I'm an automated system that can... And switchboard operators and secretaries to voice recognition technology. There are lots of examples of routine, middle-skilled jobs that involve relatively structured tasks, and those are the jobs that are being eliminated the fastest. Those kinds of jobs are easier for our friends in the artificial intelligence community to design robots to handle them. They could be software robots, they could be physical robots. What is there out there that people would be surprised to learn about in the robotics area, let's say? There are heavily automated warehouses where there are either very few or no people around. That absolutely took me by surprise. A number of left-wing theorists have put forward an action program based on the challenge of automation as they understand it to be 
And they rely in particular on the idea of a universal basic income, as you've alluded to before. What are your disagreements with that school of thought? Well, I think that the debate over basic income has been really important on the left. And I think it's good for people to um, come up with new big ideas, right, about how to get to a world without poverty. And yeah, the basic income idea is appealed because it has such a new and interesting way to think about, okay, how do we get to a world where people are not going to experience economic insecurity and poverty anymore? And that, you know, the debate about basic income goes back some time and it has, uh, yeah, different advantages and disadvantages. And I mean, just to summarize that broader debate, the one of the main critiques of basic income is that it's a it's very much a market-based individual solution. And where it often fails is when the problems of insecurity that people experience are only partially to do with their inability to get money and have to do instead with larger infrastructural questions like access to public transportation or clean water and sanitation. There's a whole range of problems that people face where the solutions that they need are big and collective in nature and difficult to solve just by giving people money and telling them to figure it out themselves. But that's not exactly where the debate goes when it comes to questions of automation and technological boosterism and the role that UBI plays, universal basic income plays in that technology story. The idea that basic income can be this kind of highway to a radically different and uh, socialist future depends on the automation story being true. Basically, what the automation story or the automation discourse is telling us is that we live in this era of such incredible productivity growth due to technology that the problem we face, according to the automation theorists, the problem we face is that we can produce more goods and services than ever before, but people don't have jobs, and so they can't earn money to buy all those goods and services. And so from that perspective, the problem that we face as a society is really a distributional problem. The problem is that all these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs have all of this money because they've invented all this cool stuff. Um, and there's no way as of yet to get that money into the hands of the masses of people who, um, who would actually buy the things that are being produced. And so in that regard, the left wing of the automation theorists come in and they say, hey, so we can get to socials. We can do all these things the left wanted just by bringing out a basic income and using that to respond to automation. What I'm saying in this particular debate is that what the automation theorists say is just not true. The problems that we face are not merely distributional. They have to do with the organization of our production system and the way that the engine of economic growth, which was really tied to industrialization and continuous incremental and over time exponential growth of productivity, that engine has been breaking down. And what we see in the context of that are massive struggles over distribution, a lot of effort on the part of business owners and governments to implement austerity programs, to push down wages, to reduce the amount of income being distributed to workers as a way to kind of keep the system going as it is huffing and puffing for air and kind of losing steam. Uh, so that's why I think that the, um, the UBI idea particularly on the left wing of the automation discourse, just doesn't present a viable strategy for us. The, the facts about the world that it needs to be based on just aren't an accurate depiction of what's going on in the world economy today. We're now going to hear a clip from a talk by the Marxist historian Robert Brenner. Speaking after the great financial crash, Brenner summarised his argument about the recent history of global capitalism. We need, I think, to start with two fundamental points. First, the crisis is incomprehensible as a short-term development. It has deep historical roots going back more than three decades. Second, although the crisis has, of course, been highlighted by the spectacular financial meltdown of 2007-2008, it expresses at bottom profound problems in the productive economy on a world scale. Put another way, 
The great crisis of the financial sector grew out of difficulties in the real economy. Now, the post-war epoch naturally divides itself into two distinct eras. First, we had, of course, the long post-war boom from the 1940s to the early 1970s, which brought the fastest, most impressive growth in the history of capitalism. But from 1973 into the present, we've had something quite different, what I would call the long downturn, characterized by much slower growth of GDP, investment, productivity, and employment. In fact, since 1973, the advanced capitalist countries have experienced ever-worsening economic performance decade by decade, business cycle by business cycle, right into the present. Not accidentally, the business cycle that ran from early 2001 to the end of 2007 and culminated in the Great Recession witnessed by far the worst economic performance of the post-war epoch. What then was it that lay behind this long downturn? I would argue that it found its fundamental cause in a major fall in the rate of profit, not only in the U.S., but throughout the advanced capitalist uh, economies. This fall in the rate of profit was itself the result of a persistent tendency to overcapacity in global manufacturing industries, which reaches as far back as the later 1960s. Essentially what's happened is that one after another, newly emerging economic power has been able to make use of the latest technology in combination with relatively low wages to manufacture for export goods that were already being produced for the world market, but to do so at a lower price. First Germany and Japan, then the East Asian NICs, especially Korea and Taiwan, and finally the great Chinese Leviathan. To make matters worse, the great corporations that were already in the market refused to politely cede the field to their new rivals, but did their best to counterattack. The result has been a profound intensification of international competition growing overcapacity, and a downward squeeze on profits in world manufacturing industries. Put another way, the problems of the economy have arisen in the first instance from globalization, specifically globalization in international manufacturing and the pressure on prices and profits that it's brought with it. Now, in the face of and in response to downward, pressures on, downward pressure on their profit rates, corporations have had two main responses. First, since falling profitability meant that they were getting lower returns from any given investment in plant and equipment and labor power, corporations have reduced incentives to invest. So they've cut back on their purchases of new plant and equipment and also on hiring of additional workers, making for the slower growth of investment and employment. Second, and perhaps most spectacularly, in order to restore their profits, corporations have unleashed a relentless assault on the wages, salaries, working conditions, and organizations of working people that has continued to this day. In this, they've been aided by governments around the world, which have reduced the growth of social services, the welfare state, and made the survival of unions ever more difficult. The upshot has been that ever since the early 70s, you've had essentially ever greater austerity in aid of the recovery of profitability. And this has resulted in the long-term stagnation of working-class incomes and the historic increases in income inequality that are today finally making the news. Your own view of the world economy is close to that of Robert Brenner, as expressed in his book, The Economics of Global Turbulence, which first appeared as a special issue of the New Left Review in the late 90s. Now, that essay and that book stoked up a lot of debate on the left when it first appeared, and it remains a landmark in the field. So I want to put to you some of the counter arguments that have been made in response to Brenner's overall thesis. The first argument is that it's unhelpful to conceptualise the whole period since the 1970s as a long downturn. According to this viewpoint, we shouldn't compare growth rates or profit rates in that period to the so-called golden age of the post-war decades, because those decades were the ones that were exceptional in the history of capitalism. If we compare the most recent period to what came before the golden age, it appears to be quite typical. How do you respond to that argument? 
There's two ways that I respond to it. First of all, I think it's totally true that the period from 1950 to 1973 or so was an exceptional period. And I think there's broad agreement that that period really isn't coming back. And so I think that that critique is really important to take seriously. I do think that it misses the mark, though, for two reasons. One is that what was so special about the post-war period and its rapid growth was the claim of that era to have fully neutralized politics, you know, to, to bring about a world where capitalism can grow so quickly that everyone can get what they want, right? We can have high profits and high wages, and we can uh, kind of sidestep some of the thorny distributional questions and questions of control that um, defined earlier eras. And so the long downturn, the decline of that period of the, the end of the period of the golden age has seen really a return of politics, right? A return of um, distributional struggles, a return of um, the, now the emergence of different sorts of uh, populisms and even the reemergence of blocks of fascists. And I think that in a way, what seems so odd to me about the claim that um, the golden age is um, the exception and that we should look back to these earlier periods to see the norm of capitalism is that that norm, that pre-golden age norm was defined by incredible economic and political turbulence and, you know, the building up of these massive socialist and other campaigns for um, dramatic social change, right? So it was an incredibly turbulent era. And that is what the golden age was supposed to resolve. And now we're being thrown back into a time of um, chaos and political turbulence. So I think that there's something mistaken, I guess, about the political or the upshot of what that critique is supposed to indicate. The most famous example of economic turbulence before the so-called golden age was, of course, the Wall Street crash. The founder of Forbes magazine told the nation that it was a great opportunity to buy stock. The Wall Street panic, in my opinion, is over. It had to come. Stock speculation had become crazy. Like an appendix operation, it's a good thing to have it over with. I personally have been buying stocks since the crash set in on Tuesday. And I have been urging everybody else who can do so to buy without going into debt. Every time America has had a panic in the past, it has paid people to buy stocks in the midst of the excitement. I am absolutely confident that stocks purchased during this panic, and we've had a panic, make no mistake about that, will also yield very generous profits. Now is the time to buy. I think the other problem with that criticism is just that um, it implies, you know, you, if you take this entire period, like 1973 to the present, and you just average the growth rate, then you'd say, yeah, you know, it is more or less like what um, pertained in the past. But what that perspective misses is that since the 1970s, there's really been in many places like a decade by decade decline in the economic growth rate. So if you just look at the period since 2000, when we've had particularly slow growing economies, it's actually that growth rate is much lower than the one that pertained during the pre-Golden Age eras. And um, this is something that I think the anti-Brunerian Marxists um, had a lot of trouble recognizing this sort of like secular decline and loss of dynamism over time. And they were always claiming that um, based on some kind of metaphysics of long cycles and, you know, some belief in capitalism's ability to kind of somewhat automatically or at least inevitably regenerate itself, they kept predicting that the cycle of stagnation would simply end and that we'd enter a new period. And that often led them to misread a series of economic bubbles as if they were actually the emergence of green shoots of growth. 
And it was only um, when figures like, you know, Lawrence Summers and um, Robert Gordon, although from very different perspectives, started to debate, well, what are the causes of secular stagnation in the present that ideas like Brenner's kind of gained without obviously referencing him, unfortunately, but um, the perspectives he talked about gained a much wider currency. In this TED Talk from 2013, Robert Gordon argued that declining growth rates were connected to a lack of technological innovation. There are four headwinds that are just hitting the American economy in the face. They're demographics, education, debt, and inequality. They're powerful enough to cut growth in half. So we need a lot of innovation to offset this decline. And here's my theme. Because of the headwinds, if innovation continues to be as powerful as it has been in the last 150 years, growth is cut in half. If innovation is less powerful, invents less great, wonderful things, then growth is going to be even lower than half of history. So it's a truism that things can't be more than 100% of themselves. And I'll just give you a few examples. We went from 1% to 90% of the speed of sound. Electrification, central heat, ownership of motor cars, they all went from 0 to 100%. Urban environments make people more productive than on the farm. We went from 25% urban to 75% by the early post-war years. Speaking to Bloomberg in 2018, Larry Summers defended the idea of secular stagnation against its critics. Some people think that, well, the economies are growing. That shows that the secular stagnation theory was wrong. I have exactly the opposite view. It required enormous fiscal stimulus to get the economies to grow even reasonably adequately, and that demonstrates the validity of the secular stagnation thesis. Relative to what happened in 2013, when I first talked about secular stagnation, take the United States. You've had far more fiscal expansion than we had then. You have far more, you have lower long-term interest rates than we had then. We have asset prices that have increased in an unsustainable way. And so it's not that the economy has somehow healed itself. It's that the set of developments predicted by secular stagnation uh, theory have happened. And yet many make the mistake of condemning those developments as somehow inappropriate because they represent abnormal monetary policies or excessively expansionary fiscal policies. Now, I, I should say, I don't think that the, the debate over what the causes of secular stagnation have been have really been resolved. But I think that um, 20 years after Bob uh, wrote that initial piece and uh, or 24 years after he wrote the initial piece in NLR, I think that you know, the clarity of the problem that there's something causing this long-term stagnation, that's something that um, people can really agree on. And I would just say as one last point that um, one thing I do that's different from what Bob does is that Bob's story is really a story, as you said, of the long downturn. It's a decline in a broad set of quantitative indicators of growth, that there's been a deceleration in the growth of all of these different things. And my account really focuses on the moment when quantitative decline becomes qualitative, because what I'm interested in is not just a decline in economic growth rates, for example, or a decline in rates of industrial uh, dynamism and growth, but rather the moment at which that decline issues in deindustrialization, the moment when rates of industrial expansion fall below rates of industrial productivity growth, with the result that um, the economy begins to shed. Uh, industrial workers, and we really enter a new era and a new new period in the employment structure and evolution of the economy. So I think that sometimes the focus on this quantitative story misses these big qualitative shifts in um, the composition of the class or the composition of the global employment structure. The second counter-argument that I want to put to you is about global manufacturing overcapacity. That's the main factor that's been cited as an explanation of the long downturn for those who broadly agree with Robert Brenner's view of the world economy. One response to that is to say that the addition of new manufacturing centres, especially in East Asia, is not simply a zero-sum game because while it creates new competitors for existing centres, it also creates new markets. For example, 
German manufacturing firms can now export to China on a massive scale. What's your view on that point? Mm. Yeah, I think that um, that's an interesting point. And I guess I'd have to look at what Bob says specifically. I think that he, for illustrative purposes, described what was going on as kind of an increasingly zero-sum game or something of that nature. But I think the point there is that his story emphasizes that as you have wave after wave of new entrants into global manufacturing production, so you have Germany and Japan and then South Korea and then, you know, the Southeast Asian um, countries and then, uh, and then finally the behemoth of China and to a lesser extent more recently of India, that the massive like push into the field of all of these entrants is just creating more and more overcapacity and driving down growth rates. I think it's important to say that, you know, this reduction in rates of growth is not the same thing as saying that there's no growth or that, you know, it's really a zero sum game. What's being identified there is a general trend in the growth rate uh, in a downward direction. And that allows for much more complexity in the story that can bring in, yeah, definitely like as China has been growing, it also forms an important market for um, German production. It's certainly true. Yet it's still the case that even as the world market structure is changing and globalizing in certain ways, in other respects, it's nevertheless true that growth rates in Germany, for example, although Germany obtained a somewhat higher growth rate in the recent period than it had 20 years before when it was like the sick man of Europe. But on the whole, the general story has been towards um, lower rates of growth in the advanced capitalist economies and a really strong secular decline, especially if you look at the OECD economies as a whole in their growth rates. And I should say as well that uh, when we talk about China, I mean, China achieved an incredible economic growth miracle, and it did so following and in some ways adapting and transforming the East Asian model that was undertaken in Japan and South Korea before. But China is now really facing that middle income trap problem. It's kind of caught up to uh, the wealthier economies in uh, Latin America and some other parts of the global South. And it's now facing a much stronger degree of competition and more difficulty making the further leap from that position into being an advanced industrial economy. And what we see is that um, the Chinese growth rate really has been slowing at the end of this 30-year period of rapid growth. And the idea, the, the account that I have that I think builds on Bob's account is that as that continues to play out and as China ceases to be a growth engine from the world for the world economy as a whole, that's only going to make these stagnation tendencies uh, stronger. And it's no mistake that this era of decline in Chinese growth rates has been you know, marked by this turning point of um, the onset of China's own deindustrialization since 2013. Um, and the reason why I feel confident about the long-term tendency of the system being towards Stagnation is that um, as China began to deindustrialize, so did the entire world. According to the UN, the world economy has been deindustrializing since around the same time, 2013, 2014. So I think that that tendency is going to become uh, really overriding. And I should stress as well, just at the end there, that one of the other ways that I extend and develop the analysis that Bob Brenner developed, uh, who and he was my advisor and he's a friend of mine and he's an amazing intellect. One of the ways that I extended that analysis is to focus not only on why is industry declining, but also why isn't the service sector replacing industry as a source of dynamism? And I there I really rely on this, in a way, very mainstream account of um, Balmol's cost disease uh, and of the tendency towards services to be just generally low productivity growth activities. Uh, and I think that's really a fundamental part of the story that just focusing on industry tends to miss. You argue in the book that the analysis of the capitalist system, which Karl Marx put forward in Capital in the late 19th century, has greater relevance for the world today than it did for 
much of 20th century capitalism. Could you tell us a little about your thinking on that point? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, Marx's analysis feels so current for, for a few reasons. One is that he really analyzed capitalism, um, not in the way that, you know, 20th century neoclassical economists did as this kind of static market system that, you know, under a set of unrealistic but mathematically beautiful assumptions um, or mathematically simplifying assumptions generates like the best welfare outcomes. Marx was part of a, you know, very influenced by the classical economists. He laid out this account of capitalism in which capitalism's dynamic was really the key part of the story. So the dynamic tendencies towards growth and, you know, the way that industries become oversupplied and are churning out capital and labor and, you know, this whole fascinating and dynamic system of development. That's really the defining feature of the capitalist economy. But Marx thought, like some other um, critics of the system, including, you know, Schumpeter and Keynes, that um, capitalism also contained within it the seeds of um, uh, its own tendency towards stagnation and loss of dynamism, and that many of the advances that uh, capitalism had generated would kind of um, fail to generate positive social outcomes as the system falls into stagnation, and, and that generates all different forms of kind of economic and political turbulence. So I think that there's something really to be said for that dynamic analysis of the system that also makes a lot of room for its loss of dynamism. But in particular, I think that my take on Marx is that although he predicted it would happen a century too soon, he was really, you know, his understanding of what would lead to that loss of dynamism really was deindustrialization. He predicted that the industrial economy that was sucking in all of this labor in Europe and then increasingly also the United States, uh, was going to um, begin at a certain point to eject labor from industry. And that the result of that would be the proliferation of what he called um, surplus populations. And something that I find very interesting about Marx's analysis of this tendency, which was really fundamental to his story about why capitalism is going to tend to immiserate the workforce is that it was going to expel workers from employment and then they were going to um, face this low demand for their labor and that was going to cause them to not be able to increase their wages as quickly as productivity. But in any case, what I find so interesting about his analysis, and it really fits the, the time that he was living in, is that he didn't think that workers would then become unemployed. Um, he thought unemployment would be a part of how workers experience this low demand for labor. In particular, there'd be some workers who were spending part of the year unemployed and then being pulled back into industrial employment and pushed out with these cycles of uh, demand and industrial growth. But he thought many more workers, he thought the main tendency of the system was going to be to generate what he called a stagnant surplus population. And if you read the passages where he describes what they look like, uh, and what kinds of things these stagnant surplus population workers are doing, they are mostly doing things like the informal workers in the informal sector today. They're doing like little jobs. They're um, working for themselves and just selling what they can on the market. Uh, and on the whole, what defines their condition is that their earnings, their wages um, and other earnings are just far below the kind of norm that registers in the industrial system for workers who are normally employed as wage laborers. And that's what he thought the kind of final result of capitalism would be. You'd have this system generating incredible productivity growth and um, industrial productive capacities far beyond anything anyone could have imagined at an earlier time. And yet, instead of using that to reduce the amount of work people do and to create a world of the fulfillment of many-sided human needs, instead of that, we would get expulsion from work and the kind of setting of the remaining employed population against all of these surplus workers who exist in a variety of conditions, but mostly as the stagnant surplus population. And when I look around the world, and here I should mention another Marxist thinker besides Robert Brenner, who had a huge influence on me, uh, who's Mike Davis, and I can't recommend enough, like the, the genius of Mike Davis. 
Um, but it was re- really reading Planet of Slums that uh, had such a huge influence on me. It made me think, wow, the world that we live in is very close to the world that Marx described. It's a world where, on the whole, the majority of adult workers in the world are just locked up in this informal sector or informal employment that looks a lot like um, the stagnant surplus population that Marx described. And the economy really is deindustrializing. Industry is throwing off employees. And um, we are living in a world of economic stagnation and also turbulence marked by rising uh, inequality, economic inequality, which Marx referred to as this earlier concept of immiseration. We're now going to hear some clips from an interview with Mike Davis, who died last month at the age of 76. Mike was speaking after the crash of 2008. Do we have the concepts to understand the nature of the current crisis other than to step back, shaking from the brink and say, this is profound? Because, you know, we're in a situation where not only do we seem to be having a second depression, but this is occurring in the context of epical climate change. It's occurring at a time when the two major benchmarks that survive for global social progress, the United Nations Millennial Goals for Relieving Poverty and and Child Mortality on one hand, and the uh, Kyoto Goals for Reducing uh, Greenhouse Emissions. Both of those sets of goals are clearly not going to be achieved. They've clearly failed. This would be a a time of fierce urgency uh, in any sense. And now we face a meltdown uh, of a world economy in a way that no one anticipated, truly anticipated the possibility of another recession, even a financial crisis. But no one counted uh, on the ability of this to happen in such a synchronized, almost simultaneous uh, way across the world. He went on to argue for a plan to reverse the damage done by economic globalization through public investments. Well, history, we learned, is, uh, you know, can be uh, reversed. I mean, the saddest thing, and remember with, with my own dad, who was a meat and potatoes, 30s trade unionist, loved, loved Roosevelt. And he's a guy who grew up in the early 20th century believing in American history. Every time the American people struggled and, and won a new right, okay, that became then a foundation for the other struggle. And that was irreversible. And he saw in the, you know, in the Reagan years, history going in, in, in reverse. His union pension fund went bankrupt. The particular industry he worked in basically uh, became defunct. And, and it, was, it was harrowing to me to see my father, who was the most patriotic guy I ever, ever knew, as it, it struck him that we're always continually fighting for principles and rights. And they can be taken away. History can go in, in reverse. But by the same token, where does it say in the Bible that we should live in a, in, in a globalized uh, uh, economy where uh, the world's you know, run by you know, Wall Street or the authoritarian leaders of, of China? I haven't seen that. So I think on the whole, it's a really, um, you know, just from an empirical level, it's a really fascinating analysis that he had. It's a very powerful analysis of the dynamic and future of capitalism. I would just say that, you know, on, an, on a kind of empirical level, Marx imagined that results would happen 100 years earlier. He thought it was already happening with the decline of the um, uh, industries of the first industrial revolution. He thought the industries of the second industrial revolution would be much less labor absorbative than they turned out to be. So instead of happening in 1870, you know, the story Marx told really started to unfold in 1970. And for whatever reason, I think the whole history of attempts to adapt Marxism and Marxist thought to the period 1870 to 1970, when most of what he said empirically um, wasn't really coming true, uh, made it very difficult for people after that, after 1970, to kind of go back and look at the text with fresh eyes and say, hey, actually, this describes um, what's going on in the world today much better than it did the world of um, 50 years ago, let's say. How would you assess the prospects for a recharged form of Keynesianism, which is an idea that's put forward not just by people on the more traditional centre or social democratic left, but also by people 
on more radical sections of the left as well. I think it's great that Marxists are taking Keynesianism more seriously and not just batting it away as a solution. I think that that kind of intellectual engagement will prove to be and will continue to be very productive. I think that it's important to note that a lot of um, a lot of people who thought Marxism was right in the early 20th century increasingly abandoned that perspective over the course of the 20th century. And that's not just intellectuals, but, um, you know, whole parties, right? Like the Social Democratic Party in, uh, in, well, really all of them across Europe, they they abandoned any idea of taking over the means of production and increasingly moved towards some kind of Keynesian welfare state perspective. And that wasn't only true in the West, that was also true in the East, where you had a lot of... um, economists who started off as um, thinking about what would it take to make like democratic and less centralized reforms of um, the Soviet and state socialist economy. And over time, they increasingly decided that there was no way to make it work. And they increasingly became advocates of some form of capitalism with the human face, uh, Keynesian welfare state capitalism. So really dealing with that, I think, is, uh, is really important. And and I say that now because it's something that um, I'm really working on for the next book that I'm, that I'm writing. I think that talking about Keynesianism and its possibilities today runs into some real trouble because um, just like with Marxism, there's no clear and exact meaning of what Keynesianism is. When people talk about Keynesian solutions to you know, the long downturn and secular stagnation, they're often talking about what Joan Robinson called bastard Keynesianism, which was the Keynesianism that more or less, or sometimes it's called hydraulic Keynesianism. And it's what reigned really in America after the war and then really spread um, from there, I think, around to Europe and to many other parts of the world. And basically the idea is just like pump priming. So like when the economy starts running down or when it's stuck in a rut, you can improve economic outcomes through state spending basically state stimulus of consumption that then feeds back into the production system. And uh, the idea here is something people say something like, look, you know, from the 1980s onward, this kind of Keynesian demand stimulus was abandoned in favor of let the market decide uh, neoliberal policies. And so what we should do today is kind of return to Keynesianism of the 1960s and 70s and see if we can use that to combat secular stagnation. John Maynard Keynes wrote the book on modern macro, the man you need when the economy's off track. The return of Keynesian ideas after 2008 had some unfortunate side effects, including the notorious Keynes versus Hayek rap battle. Didn't bounce back economies in the trash. Persistent unemployment, the result of sticky wages. Waiting for recovery, that's outrageous. I had a real plan, any fool can understand. The advice real simple, boost aggregate demand. C-I-G, all together gets to Y. Keep that total grow and watch the economy fly. We've been going back and forth for a century. I want to steer markets. I want them set free. There's a boom and bust cycle and good reason to fear it. Play more interest rates. It's the animal spirit. Now, I find that that perspective to be very wrong-headed for a number of reasons. One, people who put forward that view tend to have no real account of why everyone abandoned Keynesianism in the 1970s. It always sounds like there was just some trick that the neoliberals did to kind of change the game and change the frame. But in reality, there was a real crisis of Keynesianism because in the 70s, there was a massive attempt to stimulate the economy that resulted in inflation and didn't result in, um, you know, an uptick in economic growth rates in the way that people were expecting. And it was this real crisis that I think these proponents of Keynesianism seem to not really yet have any agreed upon explanation for why that happened. Or they, yeah, or they think it, it had to do with the contingent features of the OPEC oil crisis. The other reason why I, I find that perspective so wrongheaded is that um, it suggests that the period since the 1970s wasn't a period of Keynesianism, or that the period since the 1980s wasn't a period of Keynesianism, when exactly the opposite is true. Reagan tried to do let the markets take their course 
for the first two years of his presidency. And then, you know, he, he lost the midterms and was very scared about the political consequences of doing that. And so he just went right back to spending money. And actually, if you look at the advanced industrial economies as a whole, what you find, which is paradoxical from the perspective of the Keynesian revivalists, is that actually between 1950 and 1973, state debt levels steadily declined. The share of um, or uh, uh, government debt as a percentage of GDP radically declined over the Keynesian era and then started to radically rise and is now reached incredibly high levels um, since the 1970s. And that's just obvious evidence for how much Keynesianism has been continuously tried and replayed as a solution to the crisis. And if there's any country that's learned that lesson um, the most, it's China, which initially responded and has continued to respond to um, declining growth rates by just pumping huge amounts of money into stimulating consumption as a way to stimulate production. But what you see in China and what you see everywhere else that this has been tried is that a lot of that stimulus can slow the process of decline, but it can't reverse it. And so everywhere, Keynesianism has just been part of the story of secular stagnation. It's not a plausible response. It has been the um, standard response that's already been taken. So it's part of the story of decline. And there's a more slightly more complex story to be told here about how that stimulus, precisely by pumping up asset values and the stock market and preventing those things from declining, has in some ways actually made stagnation worse by not allowing for a revival of profit rates that would that would come about with a truly dramatic shakeout. And I think for good reason, governments have just been unwilling to let that shakeout happen. Politically, it's very untenable. Um, they're worried about what it would mean to have a lasting depression. But also in geopolitical terms, the countries that don't do it and that keep their manufacturing capacity are probably going to be the ones that benefit the most. So there's a kind of um, there's a kind of coordination problem in abandoning those uh, Keynesian policies. Now, all of that said, I think that's only one form of Keynesianism. And I think there are more radical versions of Keynesianism that are closer to what Keynes himself actually said, which wasn't that we should um, use government debt to stimulate the private economy, but rather imagine different forms of um, basically state-led economic development where the state would take over the role of uh, making investment decisions and where most investment in the economy would be decided by the state. And that is a very technocratic vision of a public economy, which is what I think more radical left-wing Keynesians have to offer. And I think that it's a really good foil for socialists to develop their thought. It's powerful and dangerous as a perspective, this kind of more radical public investment Keynesianism. Um, because in some ways it recognizes the failures and like inabilities of capitalism to get beyond its stagnation tendencies. But what it offers instead is, um, yeah, a technocratic vision in which a bunch of very smart people gain control over the economy and sort of direct it towards something that's supposed to make us all happy. And I think that um, that kind of technocratic vision is a fantasy. It wouldn't work. But I also think that... Um, it's, it, you know, contrasting ourselves to that is a real opportunity to develop a much more vibrant and exciting account of what the democratization of economic decision making would look like, what it means to take power away from technocrats um, who are increasingly mistrusted in our world for good reason, and imagine what it would look like to put power into the hands of the masses of of working class people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. What would that, what's our, what's our real democratic alternative to that Keynesian technocratic vision? On that final point, and as a last question, you do conclude the book with a discussion of what a post-scarcity society might look like and also with a consideration of what social forces and social struggles would be needed to create it. Obviously, that's it huge subject, a matter for a whole interview or, or a whole book indeed. But could you give us a brief outline of what you have in mind in that part of the book? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that going back, well, so 
I use this term post-scarcity economy, I just sort of take that over in some ways from some of the automation theorists, because I think it's really important to recognize that the automation theorists are utopian thinkers in the good sense. They're trying to imagine a realistic, in some ways, future for humanity where we would actually be happier and freer. And, you know, they're, they're trying to inspire us to think our way through the disasters and catastrophes of the present moment towards a better world. And what I identify in the last chapter of the book is that in this way, the automation theorists really stand in a much longer line of utopian thinkers going all the way back to Thomas More and his original utopia. But what distinguishes the automation thinkers or theorists is that they are very skeptical or even despairing or dystopian when it comes to possibilities for social change and social reorganization. They look to technology to solve social problems. They sort of say, okay, none of the social and political solutions worked. None of them actually got us to this post-scarcity world. So maybe these technologies will suddenly come down from the heavens or from the engineer's uh, laboratory and will just push us into this um, beautiful world without the need to really think about how to reorganize society in a more substantial way to kind of generate this outcome, this, this post-scarcity outcome. And then I say, look, you know, we should actually look to those social theorists of post-scarcity as an alternative, because if you're like me, you just don't think that automation is going to deliver the goods. There's no realistic future where technology is suddenly going to get us to this post-scarcity world. And one of the things I discuss when I talk about the social alternative, the social vision of post-scarcity is that for those thinkers, um, going all the way back to Thomas More, they aren't really talking about getting beyond scarcity or getting to a world of abundance in the way that technology people are. They're not full-fledged productivists in the sense that they're not aiming at a world where um, anybody can have anything they want at the push of a button. What these social theorists of post-scarcity are more focused on, and this includes Marx as well as a whole range of other kind of... um, left social theorists before even the term left had any meaning. What they were focused on is the idea of getting to a world where everyone has what they need, where everyone feels fundamentally secure that they're going to be able to meet their needs and that they're not going to have to worry anymore about their survival. And I think the insight going all the way back to Moore, and that's in Marx as well about that, is that this world where everyone has what they need would be a world of incredible opening of human possibilities and a real expansion, even in the very sense of what it is that people need. And so pushing towards a post-scarcity economy in the social sense requires that we focus on changes that would allow people to um, really feel secure about what they need. And that includes things like pushing for what is now called something like universal basic services that Everyone is guaranteed a level of healthcare and education and housing and a whole range of other things that they need to live, that that would just be something that people get without question. And universal basic income could definitely be part of that story, as long as it's part of a broader idea that isn't just um, market-based about how we actually get people access to the things that they need. And of course, those needs would also include needs for not just social, but ecological sustainability. And the idea is that if you can get to a world like that and really open up people's lives and their possibilities, get them to a world where they don't have to worry about survival anymore, you'll just see that human beings are incredibly inventive and capable of um, pursuing a whole range of passions and developing a broader range of associations, civic associations and political associations. And creating a diverse and interesting and beautiful world for them to live in. And that that's something really positive that we should think about more. And that I'm thinking about a lot in sort of sequel to the automation book that I'm writing, um, which is about post-scarcity economics. The big problem that you have to solve is that in this social alternative, you have to figure out how to reduce and redistribute work, the work that's still necessary that people have to do. So if you don't have this idea that technologies are going to get us there and are going to um, 
uh, make it so no one has to work, then you have to come up with an answer to the question, okay, well, how do we share the work that remains to be done? We can benefit from all these technologies that reduce the amount of work we need to do and make it possible for us all to have a lot of free time. But we need to, um, we need to find a way to actually fairly share and distribute that work as well. And I think that's something we can do. I think it's something that we can envision. But I think figuring it out involves um, the creation or the vision of a way of organizing social and economic life beyond money, beyond capitalism that we still need to develop. You know, it's an important intellectual and social problem to create a realistic vision of how we could uh, ensure that everyone's needs are met and that work is fairly distributed and that everyone has a lot of free time, how we do that beyond this um, decrepit and increasingly slow-growing and uh, turbulent world that capitalism has become and that we've been left with. Many thanks to Aaron Benenev for that summary of his thinking about global capitalism. His book, Automation and the Future of Work, is available now from Verso Books.